Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Patrick Brown joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. We'll also take your calls at 800-263-2428. And you can ask your questions of Patrick Brown. You can also, uh, you know, decide to let him know whether he's doing enough to garner your vote. Tough times to be a politician, isn't it, uh, Mr. Brown? Everybody's at you. Well, I, I still love public service, and it's great to be back on uh, on your show. Um, but you're right, this is a very important election. We're 10 months away, uh, and I can tell you, I'm uh, working my tail off going around the province. Uh, I've already done uh, four events today talking about why we need change in Ontario, because I'm not, I'm not going to settle for an Ontario that's a have-not province that gets equalization payments and that where families are struggling to make ends meet. We're going to change that, we're going to fix this, and we're working very hard at that. So, first of all, would you, uh, would you vehemently oppose the suggestion that you haven't been as visible, haven't been as, as, uh, as outspoken, or, or not as quotable as you might be? Well, I, I'm sure there's some liberal strategists are hoping for me to say some sensational comments that will be on the front page of the paper, um, but I'm not interested in catering to their campaign plan. I'm going to be reasonable, pragmatic, and do what's best uh, to get Ontario back on track. And I understand this. Listen, they've got the levers of government. They've just increased government advertising by $32 million, up to $57 million. They've taken away the Auditor General's powers to that government advertising. So they're using your money, Roy, to campaign. They're using your money uh, for partisan purposes. Um, I'm not doing that. Uh, I don't want to do that. We're doing it the old-fashioned way, which is showing up from barbecue to parade, uh, from uh, rally uh, to uh, rotary clubs, uh, explaining why this government is not taking Ontario down the right path. Mm. And governments can do that. They can take public money and they can use it to their own advantage. It's, 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 um, it's unethical, in my view. But so many of them, in fact, do that. Now, the Liberals send out regular email attacks on you. They challenge what you say, and they claim you can't back up the attacks that you uh, lead on them. And the people of Ontario also, of course, need to remember what you said and what you committed to in order for the Liberals' email attacks to fail. So it seems to me the Liberals have been perhaps a little more effective or more significantly more effective in getting their anti-Patrick Brown message out than the progressive conservatives have been attacking Kathleen Wynne. Well, you know, I, I, I actually disagree with that uh, uh, assertion. And you're looking at a premier right now who has the lowest public approval rating in Ontario history. Even if it's gone up one or two points, it's still the lowest that it's ever been. And frankly, the best barometer of where this government is, is look at... Yeah, here we go again. All this sin, all this attack, all this... You know, mudslinging on me rather than defending their own record. And Roy, I get why they don't want to talk about their own record. Who would want to talk about five OPP investigations and 350,000 lost manufacturing jobs? So in the by-election, a seat that we hadn't won since I was two years old in Sault Ste. Marie, we won convincingly. And it's not just that by-election. We've never won this many by-elections at any point in our party, uh, our party's modern history. There's something happening out there, Roy, and that's Families right now are fed up with this government, and they want reasonable, thoughtful change. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm going around Ontario, I, I talk to a small business, and, and they're telling me that 
they're struggling right now to stay afloat, whether it's hydro rates or red states or these new radical labor changes. My worry right now is that people are struggling to stay afloat in Ontario, and the same old broken left-wing policies aren't going to work. Well, look at uh, Kathleen Wynne, who's been the architect of her own uh, disaster. You and your party and the Democrats haven't had a whole lot to do with that. She's been quite competent in, in you know, in, in making a mess of her well, own I, of I, her I, own I, house. I would disagree with that a little bit in the sense that the Green Energy Act was propped up by the NDP. We could have stopped that in the minority parliament, but the NDP went along with it. And the most recent budget, the NDP voted on. You know, there's the same old policies of the Liberals and NDP. Frankly, I think a lot of people can say is Kathleen Wynne is the first NDP premier since Bob Ray. So, See, what I'm, I'm saying, what I'm saying to you, Mr. Brown, what I'm saying to you is the things that you're saying it to me now, saying to me now, the, the, the enthusiasm and the passion that you're displaying now is exactly what people want, maybe on a Monday to Friday basis from you. That may be a big ask, but people want to remember what it is Patrick Brown is pissed off about and what Patrick Brown is going to change and how he's going to change it. If you, if you tell me you're going to just make things better, I don't know what that means because every politician well, tells me that and things well, continue to get worse. Well, Roy, I'm, I'm laughing a little bit when you said Monday to Friday. I haven't had a weekend off in three years, so my, my schedule is Monday. I don't know. I, I'm just talking, yeah. about, I'm just talking <laughs> about the enthusiasm and the passion of the message. Let me ask you. The, let me let me ask you this. Let me ask you this question: Do you find? Do you think that the media in the province of Ontario are more favorably disposed toward the Win Liberals and the NDP than they are to you and the Progressive Conservatives? Is there an immediate reluctance to give you as much credit, credibility, coverage as they give the other parties? Well, you know, I, I I'm not going to talk about it, uh, and, and I don't complain about it. But the reality is, uh, I think it is a a fair assumption to make that uh, the mainstream media have, uh, uh, frankly, been more critical of conservatives that have uh, done a lot of the government's uh, bidding. Um, listen, the front page of the Toronto Star a lot of times will be promoting the government. Uh, you know, once in a while there'll be a time column for uh, the conservatives, but I think we both know it's few and far between, and I, it just means i got to work harder, meet more Ontarians, uh, and, uh, and, and get out around this province telling people why we can do better. You've got to make headlines. Yeah. You've got to make headlines, Mr. Brown. You've got to give headlines. Well, past conservative leaders have made headlines, um, but in the wrong way. And so, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily uh, committed to having to make sensational headlines. I want to make sure the policies I'm fighting for, the ideas I'm fighting for, the speeches I'm giving in town halls across this province are about real tangible ways to get Ontario back on track. And that, I can talk to you, Roy, uh, all day long. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Premier Wynn, you're welcome on the program anytime. Glad Patrick Brown is with us. The uh, Progressive Conservative Party leader. And all I said was we'd like to talk to him about what I consider to be less visibility than the, uh, the PC leader requires in order to do what he wants to do, and that's win the next election. And I'll give you credit, uh, all the credit in the world, Mr. Brown. Uh, you didn't hesitate for a second. Jack in Newmarket, go ahead, please. Thank you very much, Roy. Uh, oh. Good afternoon, Patrick. Um, good afternoon. I, I have to say, I'm a staunch conservative. I've been involved provincially, federally for many years. I even met you prior to you uh, getting involved in uh, Barry Council. My concern is, after le- leaving numerous voicemails, I sent you an email. 
I left information at your constituency office, at your Queen's Park office, and said I wanted to talk about some of the issues that were facing the people in our riding, especially after the individual who had been nominated. And over a course of maybe three or four months, I've persisted, but I haven't heard a peep from you. And I'm saying, if you're not going to talk with an individual who is very supportive of conservative values and entrepreneurial uh, issues that need to be addressed... Okay, I got it, Jack, 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 we've got it. Hold on. No, 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 we've got your point. We've got your point, Jack. Just hang on. Go ahead, Patrick, give him an answer. what's, uh, What's going on here? Because you know there's been a lot of talk about you not being fair as far as the nominee, the potential nominees for the party's concerned. Now, when first of all, we have a unique problem in the fact that people actually want to run for our party. Right now, with NDP and the Liberals, it's acclamations because they can't find people to run. We've never had this amount of people wanting to run. Um, we've now done double background checks on candidates wanting to run. We, it's caused huge membership growth. We've gone from... We, we have now more members in the PC party than ever in the party's history by a country mile. Uh, and because there was members like this who were calling in complaining about these giant nominations that were becoming divisive, as party leader, um, I don't get involved in these internal debates. But what yeah, I yeah, but don't you think don't you think Jack deserves don't you think Jack deserves a response? He's going to talk right over you, Roy. I'm sick and tired of politicians who don't listen to people who who haven't got the common courtesy to return a call. And so if he's going to be like that before the election, what's he going to be like when he's in the, the, yeah. the chair? Yeah, so neither of you have let me finish. And if, if I no, could, no, why well, finish? So, you haven't addressed okay. my question. Okay. My well, question have, is, why haven't, haven't you returned yet. my so, call? Yeah, so, so let me finish. Uh, what I did as party leader when we had these um, divisive nominations, exciting big nominations, is I took the extraordinary step of, Calling in PWC, PricewaterhouseCoopers to will you return any sure. calls? Will um, you would, return yeah, my okay. call? All right, Jack. 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 I have th- Jack. I have thirty yeah. seconds left on the half hour. It's a fair question. Yeah. So, I, Roy, if it's a question, if it's a call about a nomination, about something to do with the nomination, then we they can take that concern to PWC or the party executive because I don't get involved in. Well, I think, uh, Patrick, I think I think somebody should have returned Jack's call. He, he made every reasonable effort to try to get through to somebody. Now, hold on. We're going to have to come back. Don't go away, Mr. Brown. The clock always wins. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's get to uh, Diana in Toronto, and she has a question for uh, Patrick Brown. Hi, Diana. Go ahead, please. First of all, Patrick, you really have to listen to Roy Green and get out there and fight because my daughter didn't even know who you were. She's um, people that work a lot of them don't have time to follow politics like I do. So I finally told her, you know, you had a small ad on TV, and she said, "Oh, that's Patrick Brown." So anyway, the reason I'm calling is about carbon tax. Now they did a survey. I think the Tax Association did a survey. And um, that carbon tax is, could be the uh, winning clincher of that election. I think your PC party is against the carbon tax. Why can't you do something about getting rid of some of that carbon tax? We're talking a lot more money than she's saying. 
the company, all companies are passing that carbon tax on to the consumer. Each person in Canada is paying at least 1500 to $2,000 extra taxes. And what is she doing with that money? It's all... All right, Diana, let's hold on a second. Okay. Let's get to Patrick Brown on the question okay. of the carbon tax. People don't like it. People don't want it. People are not in favor of it. You can look at what it's done in British Columbia, Patrick. It hasn't accomplished what uh, then-Premier uh, Clark said it would accomplish. The Australians got rid of theirs in 2014 because they said it was a drag on the national economy and the individual economies of families and businesses. You've expressed support for the idea of a carbon tax. Where do you stand? First of all, I couldn't hear the question, but by based on your description, I can tell it's about the carbon tax. Yeah, where do you stand? There. Um, I've said very clearly that we're going to dismantle Kathleen Wynne's cap and trade. Uh, it is a cash grab. It's a $1.9 billion cash grab. And by the way, it's just a revenue tool. They say it's about the environment, but they're taking advantage of people's goodwill on the environment. And the worst part of cap and trade, and the reason I'm going to dismantle it, that we have to buy green credits from California and Quebec by 2030, we will have to buy two billion dollars of green credit. No, no, I get that. And we've talked about this, but what are yeah. you going? To, what are you going to do? And so, what I said is, if there's a national mandate and we have to have a carbon price, whatever Justin Trudeau forces us to collect, I will give back to the people every single cent because I don't want to take advantage of people's goodwill and environment. Why don't you? Why don't you join Brad Wall in a in a court challenge to the to the carbon tax? Why well, and. By the time I'm premier, it's already going to be there. We expect the court challenge to have been uh, unsuccessful. But what I've said, if, if, we, if there's a national framework that we have to abide by, every single cent will be returned to the public. We're not going to take advantage of people's goodwill in the environment. It should not be a revenue grab for government. Okay, let's go back to what we were talking about okay. just before the break of the half hour. And I, yeah, I, I, I have to give you the opportunity to say what... No, hold on. I'm, I'm going to give you the opportunity to say what you want to say about the criticism that you've received for stage directing the nominations for candidates for the party. So let me say very clearly, I was a little bit disappointed I, I couldn't finish my response. I said, when there's an appeal... When, when the party's conducting an appeal and it's observed by PwC, it'd be inappropriate for me to get involved. We let the appeal process take place. There are representatives from the riding from the party uh, that uh, observe this process. And um, in the end, I believe it's a fair process. I think we've nominated 78 great candidates. But I'll tell you something, Roy, a lesson that I've um, been given from former prime ministers and premiers, and that, that's make sure you do your vetting. You know, I, I, I look at the last federal election, uh, where Prime Minister Harper lost precious campaign days. Things came up about a guy that peed in a cup and someone that had a YouTube video. So I doubled down. I said, not only are we going to do one vetting, we're going to do two vettings to make sure that no one has anything in their past that I cannot defend during the campaign. And I, I, and I tell you what, there are times when we've had to disqualify candidates, but it's based on reasons that we've done our due diligence. I have to build a government. I, I have to have confidence in all those individuals that are running for MPP, and I can tell you of the candidates nominated, none of them are there going to there's going to be issues with. And so, um, yes, we've had to make some hard decisions. Yes, we've had to disqualify candidates, but it's to make sure we don't give. So, so you're so you're so you're saying so you're saying then that everyone who was disqualified had issues you would have trouble with. Absolutely. All right, Anne in London, go ahead, please, Anne. Oh, hello. Hi, go ahead. You're on the air. Oh, thank you. Yes, Patrick, I'm wondering why you voted with Kathleen Wynne with the so-called Islamophobia motion. Because let me tell you, it is not a phobia to be against barbaric 
cultural practices like pedophile marriages, All right. female okay. genital okay. mutilation. Okay. No. no, 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 no. I'm not, not going to get into pedophilia. And But what about, M, what about M103, Patrick? What about this whole idea about Islamophobia? Are, uh, the, there is some real concern about the, about the agenda that is behind the motivation for this motion. So, Roy, at the same time uh, that there was a federal motion, the provincial liberal government put forward a similar but different motion of their own. And what I said at the time is I was going to support their motion because hate is hate is hate. And I don't care if you're Hindu, if you're Muslim, if you're Jewish, if you're Catholic like me. It doesn't matter what your religion is. In Ontario and in Canada, we should never tolerate hate. And, and Roy, we passed similar motions for hate against Jewish people, for hate against uh, Chinese uh, Canadians, for hate against... Tamil Canadians, and why I would be against hate for one group and not be against hate just because someone's of Muslim faith, uh, for me, would be inconsistent, and um, I'm proud of a Canada that will always condemn hate in any case. Yeah, but isn't there, Patrick, hasn't it become almost uh, problematic that sometimes if, if somebody expresses an opinion, that becomes hateful when it's only an opinion? And it clearly would be protected under freedom of expression in our Constitution. People are now becoming afraid to speak. And that is something that we have to absolutely make sure does not happen. I don't think people are generically uh, hateful. There are some people who are, but it's not generically the case. I'm going to be talking next hour with, uh, with, a, with a woman who has worked um, for years with refugees and will be talking to us about an Afghan refugee and migrant crime wave in, uh, in Europe. And somebody could turn around and say, well, that's hateful. Well, no, it isn't. Well, Roy, on the provincial motion, it's very clear that it would be nothing to infringe uh, freedom of speech. I uh, completely uh, support freedom uh, of speech, like all Canadians do. Uh, it, it came after the horrific uh, attack at a Quebec mosque to show solidarity with a community that was, uh, that was uh, you know, feeling um, a, a lot of fear. And it, it, why, when we denounce hate for other religions, denounce hate uh, um, numerous times in the legislature, why, why wouldn't we hear? And uh, um, I don't care if it's popular or not, uh, hate is hate, I'll always speak against it. Yeah, well, the, the situation in Quebec City, and we talked about it at the time, was horrific. But at the same time, don't forget that 40,000, I think it was the number, maybe it's more, maybe it's a little less, Syrian refugees came to this country. And they didn't come to this country because the federal government was particularly capable and opened up the doors and the houses and provided homes and welcoming for these people from Syria. It was the average Canadian. It was small-town communities. It was church groups. It was business organizations. It was just a group of families on a block. That's the kind of thing that we should be looking at as far as Cana- general Canadian attitude is concerned. Yeah, not not yeah. some not some bloody maniac who, uh, you know, he doesn't represent this country. Yeah, he doesn't represent right. Canadians. He doesn't represent you. He doesn't represent me. No, Canadians are decent, caring, generous people. Absolutely. Absolutely we are. So you're going to win next year? We're going to work hard and we're going to make sure we do because Ontario can't afford it if, if we don't. It's, uh, it's a giant mess. It's a cesspool of ethical lapses at Queen's Park. And the reason I'm working my heart out, Roy, is you know, I think of my nephew right now. My, my nephew, always one year, one year old, just turned one, and he owes $23,000 because he was born in Kathleen Wins, Ontario. We'd better win. We need to get this problem uh, uh, back in shape. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, you knew we were going to ask you questions. You didn't duck, you didn't run, and that's, uh, 
That's a good thing. We haven't heard Any from the Premier. Yeah. Well, we'll call you again. Thank you, Patrick. Okay, thank All you. All the best, Patrick Brown. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Kilo Maggi is the CEO of Main Street Research, and uh, you, were the, you were the first to uh, call a majority government for Trudeau in 2015, right? Correct, yes. Yeah, I remember we had that conversation. And it was right after yeah. I'd spoken to Stephen mm-hmm. Harper. So, uh, Keto, I just spoke uh, with Patrick Brown for the last 40-odd minutes. And the whole idea was to kind of challenge him on maybe lack of visibility and lack of message and lack of focus and not getting through to the voters he needs to get through to. What, is your, uh, what does your gut tell you? What does your polling tell you about what's happening now as far as the people of Ontario are concerned just a little more than a year out from the election? Well, I don't know if you heard it, Roy, but uh, when I heard you reading that email from uh, from a conservative, I, I actually laughed out loud because, um, you know, it, it, it that's that sort of message. We've been seeing a lot of that across Ontario for the last couple of months. There's been a lot of media about uh, nomination meetings and other things the, the parties even embroiled uh, in a lawsuit. But I, I actually, you know, call me either a cynic or 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 the least cynical pollster out there, uh, depending on your perspective. I actually don't think any of that matters. And in fact, I think it's actually a positive sign uh, for Patrick Brown. Um, you know, he has definitely changed the culture of the Ontario PC party. Um, and when you do that, whenever you go into an organization and you change the culture of it, you renew it. Um, you're going to, you know, the old guard isn't going to like it. And I think that that's what Patrick Brown has done in the PC party. Uh, sure, uh, maybe some long, long, uh, long-time conservatives, uh, people used to a different style, uh, and, and former uh, insiders, including some cabinet min- former cabinet ministers who have criticized Patrick Brown, don't like what he's doing. But the numbers are simply not reflecting that. Uh, you know, a few other polling companies have had it tightening up between Kathleen Wynne and Patrick Brown. Our last province-wide poll in June still had a 20-point a lead for the PCs. We have a new poll coming out tomorrow of, of Toronto only, but uh, uh, included in that poll is provincial horse race numbers. I can't talk about those details until they're out, but what I can tell you right across the 416 is the PCs are leading, including uh, three of the four uh, uh, regional breakdowns. The only place where it's close is, is in the downtown core. So is is he, you know, yes, he's under a lot of scrutiny. He's under increased scrutiny because he's actually out there and more visible. Um, but the ads that they've been running are, are working, and I think, uh, you know, if these numbers continue for much longer, Kathleen Wynne is, is lame duck uh, premier right now. So is the success that they're having with the numbers, the PCs, is it because of their actions, because of Mr. Brown's actions, or is it because of the the lack of popularity and the the dwindling popularity of Premier Wen, Or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's exactly that. It's a combination of, of a number of things, a combination of Kathleen Wynne has just become synonymous across Ontario with, you know, uh, every problem that the province has had, and many of them that she, not her fault that she inherited from uh, from Premier McGuinty. Um, 
but also let's not forget Patrick Brown. They had a very long leadership in which, you know, and, and some people did not like it, but he did work very, very hard to uh, renew the party, to open it up to younger people, to, to more uh, diverse, uh, make it a much more diverse party. Uh, those efforts are paying off, uh, not just in the 416, across the 905. Uh, right now with the numbers, you know, I, I'm not going to talk in terms of seat, but it's a definite majority for Patrick Brown. Let's not forget, you know, I, I was thinking about this the other day. Leading up to the 2015 election, there were many, many nomination controversies and even lawsuits against the, the federal Liberal Party, and uh, none of that affected what the outcome was that, that happened in October. There are other factors at play in, in terms of why Patrick Brown is having success, and it's largely the same reasons why Justin Trudeau had success in, in late 2015. All right, so you mentioned Justin Trudeau, and there's a lot has been said about Mr. Trudeau, particularly since the $10.5 million was paid out to Omar Khadr. I had so many phone calls from people who said, we're going to make him pay for this in 2019, and yet I look at uh, stories about polling, and uh, he's still polling well. Uh, is 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 he going to pay for two for uh, the ten point five million dollars? Is is it a question of uh, Andrew Scheer getting known, or an, an NDP leader being uh, elected within the party, or is Trudeau strong enough now that he could with, withstand both? Yeah, I think it's uh, well. There's a number of I, I wrote uh, last year during the the conservative uh, the federal conservative leadership race that. That, that race was irrelevant, that the NDP one that's happening now that is going to be elected in October uh, of this year is the one that really matters. As long as there's no strong leadership on the left, the, Trudeau eats up all that uh, ideological ground. Um, you know, we know from the last election and, and the factors that are at play in it, same as in Ontario is you know, we know, we've known since 2014, the projections said that millennials, those voters, 18 to 34, are going to become the largest voting, single voting block uh, before the next election, certainly before the next federal election and the provincial one. Um, you know, those people uh, are not going to vote for the conservative ideology, typically. Um, if, a, if a new, young, dynamic, or, or a young, appealing, like a Bernie Sanders in the U.S., that appeals to that 18 to 34 millennials. We know Trudeau in the last election got about 72% of that uh, voting block. Uh, unless someone in the NDP can come in and appeal to that, to the millennial voting block and get them to turn out in big numbers like Trudeau did, Trudeau's not in any trouble. Um, the Omar Cotter, you know, we've done some riding polls. We've done a couple of national polls that Omar, you know, since Omar Cotter and, and, um, you know, despite the media attention that it has gotten, the numbers are holding. Um, I think what's offsetting the Omar Khadr uh, effect, uh, because it definitely is having a, an effect, yeah. is, is all the international stuff that Trudeau is doing. And, and okay. the Canadians are very proud that, that, that our prime minister is prominent on the world stage. Okay, Keto, always good talking to you. Thank you so much. I gave you short notice. I appreciate you coming on. No problem, Roy. Bye-bye. Keto Maji is the CEO of Main Street Research. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. For some time, there's been stories that have come out of uh, Europe about sexual assaults 
on uh, European women by migrants and refugee claimants. And initially, those stories were seemed to be just shoved under the rug, as it were. It was there weren't talked about. They were rumored, and people would send emails saying this is going on and that's going on. But media reports were scarce. Politicians weren't saying very much, and very few people were going to jail. I uh, I read a column that uh, appeared on uh, nationalinterest.org by uh, Dr. Cheryl Bernard. She was a program director of the Initiative for Middle Eastern Youth and the Alternative Strategies Initiative within the RAND Corporation's National Security Research Division. Her publications include Civil Democratic Islam, and that was found among the books that Osama bin Laden had when the U.S. Navy SEALs raid on the compound he had in Pakistan took place. The uh, current column in uh, that, that uh, Dr. Bernard has on um, the nationalinterest.org is headlined, I've worked with refugees for decades. Europe's Afghan crime wave is mind-boggling. And Dr. Cheryl Bernard joins us from Italy on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Dr. Bernard, thank you so much for taking the time. And would you share with us what your background is as far as working with refugees is concerned? I've worked with refugees for many, many decades, starting with the refugee situation in Pakistan during the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan when huge camps, about 3 million refugees, were set up in in the Pakistan border area. And I was at the time working for a European think tank, and we were sent there to evaluate the health programs and the other aid programs, education and so on, being developed for the refugees. So I've kind of been an advocate for refugees for most of my professional life. I've also worked in Yemen, Nicaragua, and a whole other list of countries on refugee-related matters. Did you have any expectation of how this intense migration into Europe from the Middle East and North Africa was going to play out when it first began? So I have, you know, two hats, so to speak. One is my my humanitarian refugee aid hat, and my other hat is my counterterrorism hat, which is the topic that I was working on mostly for the RAND Corporation. And with the second hat, it was pretty clear to any observer who thought about it for five minutes that this was a very worrisome situation because you were having large numbers of people come in much more quickly than you possibly could see who they were. They were just flooding across the borders, and you, even if you assume the best, which is that most of them were legitimate refugees with no bad intentions, you had to know that this was an opportunity that radical extremist groups were not going to pass up. What I had not anticipated, and that is why I decided to write this, this article, I had not anticipated the crime aspects of it. I thought that there were going to be terrorism-associated risks, and I thought there were going to be social risks, especially of the refugees internally, as you had these warring groups sort of, you know, flooding in together. But I didn't think that they were going to commit crimes on this scale. And it's not just sex crimes, it's crimes across the board. Uh, you know, robberies, theft, there have been some murders as well committed by, by the refugees against the, the native population. Before we look at the broader reality of the crime wave, you write in the article, vicious, no preamble sexual attacks on random girls and women often committed by gangs or packs of young men. Um, and those, those have been 
over at least the first year or so, a year and a half. Is it fair to say that they've been swept under the proverbial rug? Well, definitely. So the the media actually this this the media partly on their own initiative because they wanted to prevent a right wing backlash, and partly because they were being pressed by their respective governments to not talk about this, uh, really misrepresented or failed to represent the situation. There are some very interesting statements that I managed to dig up from various police unions too who were very angry at being directed from above not to talk about this and to sort of keep a secret the nationality or the asylum status of the perpetrators in order to avoid what the authorities feared was going to be a a backlash. So European governments were ready to sacrifice their own vulnerable girls and women to marauders. That's pretty much what it boils down to, I'm sorry to say, yes. I guess they would put it differently. They would say that, well, these are transitional problems and it'll all get settled down and we don't want, you know, a huge political conflict to occur. But what you're saying is exactly what it is. The German vice chancellor just a few weeks ago said Germans who oppose refugee claimants should be in prison. There there you are, exactly. And there have been tragic cases. For example, last year, uh, the, the daughter of a member of the EU parliament who actually had volunteered to help refugees, too, because that was sort of her family's bent, was, uh, was raped and murdered by, uh, by, also by an Afghan refugee in, in last fall. And, you know, and then again, the father was sort of feeling this dilemma. Well, it's his daughter, and this is obviously a horrible family tragedy, but he doesn't want this to be, you know, to cause political issues. So you, you really have to think about the hierarchy of what's important to your society, and they're only now beginning to do that. I, I um doing some follow-up research because I got quite a bit of backlash myself for my article, um, which was perceived by some as, uh, you know, as maybe fanning the flames that shouldn't be fanned. So I, I, I dug deeper and, and went looking for data. And in detail, which is a newspaper that no one can accuse of being, uh, of being right-wing, they, they in turn dug up some crime statistics that were published, but published very in a very difficult to find manner. And one of the results of that is that 7.7% of rapes in Germany were committed by migrants, although they are only 0.5% of the population. So there you have some numbers, and it's not just impressionistic. That's a scary number. Exactly. Because if I, if I understand what, is, what happens in society, these numbers are not going to get smaller, they'll just get bigger. Well, they're going to get bigger. And what worries me when I look at the sex crimes in particular, you had that little quote at the beginning. A lot of them are, so, so you know, one of the excuses that people give is, well, these are cultural misunderstandings and these are young men who are not used to interacting with young women and they're just, you know, they don't know how to behave. So they're reading the wrong signals. And that's one of the excuses that's made for them. But then when you look at the actual cases, that totally is negated because what's happening is you'll have, for example, a woman walking in the park with her infant in a baby buggy in a stroller and her her toddler walking next to her and she's just walking along the park and suddenly she's lunged at by an Afghan refugee. Well, there's no misunderstanding possible there. That's just flat out a crazy attack. And most of the cases that I find and that I cite in my article are in the nature of those sorts of attacks. Now, some of them, if you look at them, are also rather inept because they will do them in public places where the other passers-by will intervene them. So my concern is that they're going to get better at it, and we're going to have more statistics, and they're going to be 
you know, it's going to be a worse problem. It's, I don't think this problem is going away. Well, it, and, and it, it seems to be because, again, the vice chancellor of Germany said that his own people, Germans, should be thrown in prison. Not the rapists, but the German people who are against the refugees should be thrown in prison. This isn't just happening in Germany, is it, Dr. Bernard? It's, Bernard, it's happening across Europe where refugees, and, uh, and, and it's not all refugees and it's not all migrants, clearly, but it is happening in countries where refugees and migrants have been welcome and have settled or in the process of trying uh, to settle. The other, the other problem is that once, even if you have a, you know, you... you you arrest this person, and there's a trial, and they're found guilty. They still can't be deported. So you're essentially stuck with these people forever. And 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 this is a legal issue that the that the EU is going to have to look at because their laws are not designed for situations such as these. You're listening to the Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML. Uh, Dr. Bernard. Afghan, young Afghan males, you're right, are predominantly the ones who are engaged in the kinds of acts that you've uh, described. Why? Yeah, that's very baffling. Uh, there, there are much higher percentage of, um, of being involved in these sorts of crimes than, for example, the Syrian refugees. Partly it could be the constitution of the group. The, the Syrians usually come from urban areas. They're a lot more educated. They come with their family. And I would say they're actually genuine refugees, too, which the Afghans aren't really. The Afghans are young men who are kind of a the spearhead of, of an attempt to get into Europe and take advantage of some of the social and economic offerings that Europe has. Um, they're, not, they're not refugees in that sense. And on that note, what I would like to say and, and have people think about a little bit is, when I started in refugee work in the very early 1980s, it was perfectly normal, and everyone knew that there were three categories. There were refugees, where there had been some enormous crisis, like a, a famine or a war, and people were not able to stay in their place very urgently, had to leave. And they were typically settled somewhere in a refugee camp near their home. Then there were asylum seekers. These were people where you thought, well, they're not going to be able to go home probably ever because they belonged to a persecuted political group or a regime that had been overthrown or a, a minority that was being persecuted there. So they had to get political asylum, and that was typically a small group. And then you had completely separate from that, you had migrants. And I think one of the big problems that we face today is that somehow these three groups have gotten mixed up with each other. And we're treating everybody as migrants, when in fact the refugees shouldn't be coming to the West at all. These refugees should find safety, and we should help pay for it perhaps in their own region, in their own neighborhood, with the understanding that as soon as the crisis ends, they go home again. Instead, suddenly, they're all migrants. Uh, Is there a message here for Canada and the United States? Definitely. I think that definition has to stop. If you're, first of all, the people that you're bringing in, you must vet them. And however you feel about Trump, on this point, it's hard to argue that he's not right. You have to drastically vet these people and know exactly who is coming in, where they, where, what they're all about, what their values are, and how they're likely to behave when they're here. That's one. Two, you're going to have to look at your legal system and see if you have somebody who's definitely a bad actor, are you going to be able to deport that person easily? Or is that person going to linger around troubling your legal system for the next 20 years or possibly for their entire lives? And three, you're going to have to look at what is a refugee? 
and, and if a person is not from a war zone or an, an immediate area of peril, they're not a refugee and they shouldn't be coming to a, a, a different country except through an immigration program. All right, Bernard, one more question. You, you mentioned that the uh, judicial systems in, the, in Europe are not capable of, of really quickly dealing with, uh, with these individuals and kicking them out when they've committed these uh, crimes, uh, the, the rapes and also the additional crimes that, that you say are going on. Um, is there a real danger of a societal backlash? Well, I think this could, I, I don't see a happy end here. I see, you know, two bad endings. One bad ending is that these societies remain as passive and, you know, as wrongly liberal in the wrong way uh, as they currently are. And this problem grows to a dimension where it can't be handled anymore. And you literally have, you know, sort of a Mongol invasion kind of situation with hordes of extremely violent men rampaging across Europe. And I'm exaggerating but not very much or the second situation is that people finally sort of wake up to the danger and perhaps the institutions don't but civil society does and then you get huge societal conflicts and neither one of those are a very desirable outcome no they're not and as you say canada there's a message here for canada and the united states as well dr bernard thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today I was glad to talk about this with you. Thank you. Bye. Uh, bye-bye. Dr. Cheryl Bernard joining us from uh, Sicily. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, Dr. Bernard did say that uh, it, it's it's largely not the Syrians who are committing the, the, the rapes or the assaults, that it's young Afghan males in Europe. The Swiss people said no. In a national referendum, they said no. We don't want mass migration into this country. Now, it was a narrow decision. It was 50.3%, but that's all it takes is 50% plus one. We remember narrow decisions, 1995 in Canada, when Quebecers voted by one millionth of one millionth of one millionth of one millionth of one percent. I'm slightly exaggerating to stay in this country. Lucy Stamm is a member of parliament. He's been an MP in Switzerland, in the Swiss parliament, for many years. He's a former vice president of the Swiss People's Party, and he was very active in stewarding the referendum through the Swiss system, which had the majority of Swiss people's citizens saying they did not want a mass migration into their country. Lutzi, good to speak with you again. And as I understand it, this, this referendum took place in 2014, and the federal government of Switzerland has three years to act on the demands of the people of Switzerland. So the federal government this year in Switzerland has to have a law that reflects what that referendum demanded. Is that correct? That is correct. It's nice to talk to you again. But as you said, in 2014, the Swiss population, in a very narrow decision, said no to totally opening the borders. And what has the Swiss federal government done about it? Because there was a lot of opposition from European countries. And if I remember correctly, you told us the, the, the actual party in power was not in favor of what the Swiss people decided. And they are not putting into action the, these laws as they should as quickly as possible. It's as in other countries, perhaps also in the United States and Canada, Politicians, unfortunately, react very slowly. 
So I mean, is there a law going to be in place this year to reflect that vote in 2014 as the Constitution of Switzerland requires? Not yet. We are in a difficult path. Um, even though the Swiss population has taken a clear decision in 2014, it is not put into effect. So the Swiss population has to push again and again, and perhaps we have to go and collect another 100,000 signatures to force the people in power, or the politicians, to, to react. Now, we just heard from uh, Dr. Cheryl Bernard, who has worked with refugees for, for many years, and she's written a, uh, an article on uh, nationalinterest.org, which is headlined, I've worked with refugees for decades. Europe's Afghan crime wave is mind-boggling. And she talked about uh, sexual assaults on women and girls in European countries in the middle of the day and in cities and towns, and politicians intentionally doing nothing about it, saying nothing about it, trying to persuade police to not arrest anyone and just keep it quiet. Are, are you aware of that going on in Europe? Yes. Um, the situation is not identical in different countries like Sweden or Germany, or France or Switzerland, and the problems are not identical. But also in Switzerland, it is totally obvious that opening the borders has a lot to do with the criminal rate. Like in, in Swiss prisons, more than 80% of the people who are in prisons are foreigners. <sighs> Are, are, are the people who are entering Europe, for the most part, legitimate refugees, or are they opportunists who are looking for a better life, and then some of them, many of them, I don't know what the percentage would be, few of them become troublemakers? Um, oh, it is difficult to answer that um, in, in, in one short, uh, short answer. Um, it is obvious that many, many, many come without being refugees. But then I have to say they are attracted by the stupidity of European leaders, um, like Angela Merkel, who said, the German, um, the most powerful woman in the world, who said, um, everybody is welcome here. That was such a tremendous mistake that I don't blame the ones who come. Um, of course, it's a m minority um, of those who come. There are lots of them are not um, refugees, and it's only a small majority um, which is really criminal. But th that's sufficient, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, the, the number is increasing, increasing of crimes we have, even, if in, even in the safe Switzerland. So one of the things that Dr. Bernard wrote is that the people who are co going into Europe, who shouldn't be there, who are not really refugees, uh, who, who are committing the crimes, these people actually look down on European systems, ridicule European systems, and think Europe is too weak to, to survive. In a certain way, this might be true, or this most probably is true. true. The main problem I see here in Switzerland and in Europe as a whole. The ones who are caught, the ones the police gets them, they do not transport them home right away. This would be the most effective thing to do if people come here, don't adapt, become criminals. They should be transported home as quickly as possible and um, people, 
the, the responsible politicians don't do that. So there's now also conflict between European Union countries. I talked about it briefly. You have a better idea of this than I do, so I'm just reading what's going on. But Poland, the Czech Republic, and Hungary are saying to the European Union, no, we are not going to do what you want us to do. We are not going to take uh, 100,000, 200,000, whatever the number is, of these migrants into our countries because you want us to. We're not doing it. We're slamming the border shut, and and that's it. So is there a is this going to be a really significant problem between European nations? In a certain way, I hope so, because I'm glad there is this attitude of countries like Hungary and who say, hey, Germany, if you want to let them in, that is your problem. But you cannot turn around, look at us, and say you have to take the same percentage, you have to pay this. This is insane. The attitude the Germans have, have or at least had in 2015-16 is insane. What would you say to people who would argue, well, look, anybody who has this attitude about migrants or about refugee claimants in Europe obviously is a right-wing racist. What would you say to people like that? That is totally ridiculous. Um, look at the women's rights. Um, I think even the leftists start to change. Um, let's take um, um, f- French females. They start to realize what that means if you just open the, the borders and everybody from Africa can come over. So um, in five years, in ten years, whatever, um, even the so-called left parties will totally change their attitude in immigration. Everybody who opens the borders totally is insane. Is it too late for Europe now, Lucy, as some people have suggested? That's a difficult question. That's a difficult question. Because as soon as you um, reach a certain percentage, it is not possible um, to um, to change the path anymore. Um, I hope it's not too late, and I'm still confident um, it, it's not too late. I, I don't want to talk for um, Canada or the United States. You have to have your own leaders. But I uh, totally understand if an American president, president stands up and says we have to control the borders. Lucy Stamm, it's always good talking to you. Thank you for the time today. I know it's evening for you. Thank you again. And good luck to you. Good luck to Canada. And I hope to talk to you um, soon again. We Bye-bye. will. Thank you, Lucy. Lucy Stamm, uh, she's a long-standing member of the Swiss Parliament. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Victor Taylor is a Filipino national. He's with the McKenzie Institute. He worked with the Philippine Muslim communities for 50 years, and he also assisted in rescue efforts for five hostages of Abu Sayyaf. He's worked in government, civil society, and business sectors in, uh, in the Philippines. Mr. Taylor was very kind to get in touch with me as we were talking about the Canadian hostages of Abu Sayyaf and provide me with information about whether or not uh, Canadian uh, first, uh, what's happening with the phone, whether uh, Canadian Special Forces and U.S. Special Forces and Philippine Special Forces could have worked together to free the Canadians. Philip, thank you so much for uh, taking the time and uh, and joining us. And the, the point that you made to me by way of email is because of Philippine law, it would have been extremely difficult for Canadians and Americans to go in and rescue 
the Canadians with the Filipino uh, militaries. Can, can you explain that to us? Uh, that's right, Roy. Uh, can, can you hear me clearly? Yeah, very fine. Yeah, okay. Um, as, as I indicated in my email to you, um, there is a constitutional prohibition in the Philippines for uh, troops of other countries uh, to get involved in military operations in, in the Philippines. Uh, however, uh, there is nothing to prohibit um, foreign uh uh, military institutions for from providing uh, assistance, support uh, by way of advice, by way of uh, logistics, uh, which, uh, for example, the United States and um, Australia uh, are currently providing. Okay. So it would have been possible for the Canadian Joint Task Force 2 Special Forces Unit and uh, American Military Special Forces Unit to provide logistical and other support to Philippine military, but they couldn't have taken the lead role. No, they couldn't have been involved in combat operations. They would have to be in the background. Okay. And that is that a, is that a firm law? Because there's a new president in the Philippines, and, and he seems to be making up laws as he goes along. Uh <laughs> Yeah, he's been expressing his opinion on you know on what he'd like done, but no, it, as I say, it is a constitutional prohibition, and so uh, he would get into trouble if he tried to do that. What's your history in the in the Philippines? I mentioned that you've worked with Muslim communities for decades, and and I, I, part B of the question is: Is the Philippines a divided country along religious lines, and if so, which is the which is the dominant religion? Oh, uh, the dominant religion is, is Christianity, um, specifically uh, Catholicism, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. Um, that's about, I'd say, Christianity as a whole, including all sects, would be, say, 90% of the population. Mm-hmm. Um, Muslims would be about 5%, and, and the balance would be you know, the sprinkling of other faiths. Now, are these faiths um, dispersed throughout the country, or do certain members of certain faiths uh, live more directly in one part of the Philippines and not in in others? Well, Christians you would find throughout the country, from north to south. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Muslims are primarily concentrated in the south, in Mindanao, Um, but you do have Muslim communities... uh, elsewhere, like in, in the capital region in, in Metro Manila. Okay, the reason I ask is that we've now been hearing that ISIS, as it loses ground in Syria and Iraq, is looking for a foothold in Southeast Asia and has selected the Philippines. And they already have an ally in that Abu Sayyaf group. Is is that a, a legitimate story? Um, yes, uh, except that I, I'd say that the ISIS influence uh, goes back to 2014 when, you know, when the caliphate uh, was first uh, established in Syria and Iraq by uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Mm-hmm. Um, right after the caliphate uh, was declared, uh, which was uh, in late June of 2014, uh, a number of groups in the Philippines pledged their loyalty 
to the Islamic State and to uh, the caliph, the so-called caliph. Uh, the, as you said, the Abu Sayyaf is one of them. Uh, but there were other groups as well. Uh, one group known as the Bangsamoro Islamic uh, Freedom Fighters, another group known as the uh, Maute group, which is the one that is heavily involved in the fighting in the city of Marawi today, uh, and maybe half a dozen other uh, militant uh, Islamic groups. So is there a great deal of unease between uh, the majority Christian community and the minority Muslim community? Uh, should we have been surprised that, they, that ISIS, once it formed the caliphate, would receive immediate, almost immediate, uh, support from organizations uh, within the Philippines? And was the Muslim population in the Philippines generally supportive of, 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 uh, of ISIS? Uh, well, to answer your last question, no. The Muslim uh, population is not generally supportive uh, of these militant groups that have pledged loyalty constitute a minority, but obviously uh, with their uh, weapons and their very aggressive tactics, um, um, they uh, obviously carry uh, a lot of weight. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Victor Taylor has been involved in the Muslim area of the Philippines for the past 50 years. He's lived in the province of Sulu and has worked in the government, civil society, and business sectors of the Philippines. In recent years, he's assisted in efforts to effect the release of five captives of the Abu Sayyaf group, and that's the group we've been talking about. Victor is associated with the Mackenzie Institute. He's a Philippine citizen, although he has permanent residence in Canada. Pretty soon I'll be telling everybody what you had for lunch, Victor. <laughs> uh, just, just a slight correction there, Roy. I'm actually not associated with the McKenzie Institute, except that you know I did write the series of articles on the Abu Sayyaf uh, for them. Okay, okay. Uh, correction noted. So, um, when you uh, we've talked a lot about the release of captives, I, I want to make sure that we don't skate by this without talking to you about it. We've talked about a lot about the opportunity to release or, or effect the release of captives of Abu Sayyaf. And, of course, we had the, 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 uh, the, the two Canadians, Robert Hall and John Ridsdale. Was there opportunity, proper opportunity, to obtain their release? And how were you involved in the efforts to release, as much as you can tell us, the efforts to release the five other captives of Abu Sayyaf? Mm, on your first question as to whether there was an opportunity to release... Uh, uh, John Ridsdale and Robert Hall. I mean, obviously the opportunity was there, except that uh, the demands of the Abu Sayyaf at the time were were ridiculous. You know, they were asking for something like $20 million each. Um, and uh, this could have been done, I mean, obviously it would have been a matter of negotiations, while in the background you you always have the effort on the part of the military to try and rescue them, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, the chances of that occurring are very slim. Um, so negotiations would have been uh, the best approach, except that you would have to find uh, the most 
effective negotiators vis a vis the particular group that was holding them. Mr. Rodwell, we spoke to uh, in Australia. He was one of the. He was one. He was not one of the five. I don't think. May have been. No, no, no. No. Okay. He was a he was a captive of Abu Sayyaf, whom was threatened with beheading, and they wanted millions of thing for him. And then eventually they settled for a hundred thousand dollars and said it was room and board. Mm, right. That seems bizarre. Um, well, they use that euphemism, room and board, but, but as a matter of fact, they do. You know, the the Abu Sayyaf uh, do incur some expenses. I mean, and there's there's an understanding among the groups involved because there is outsourcing involved in kidnapping. In other words, the groups that actually do the abduction will then pass off the victim to another group uh, who may or may not be the final uh, custodians of the victim. Mm-hmm. So the victim can change hands several times, and there is an understanding among them as to how they would split whatever payments would ultimately be received. So you were uh, you were involved in assisting the release of five captives of Abu Sayyaf, correct? Um, yes, yes. Not not Rodwell, though. I was not involved in that. Okay. Case. Is it something that you can talk about or not? Um, I'd rather not. Okay. We don't have to. So when you look at the current president of the Philippines and you look at the current president of the United States, they're both unique. So, um, I chose that word carefully. But there's also an agreement, an enhanced defense agreement of, of some kind between the United States and uh, the Philippine government now. But Mr. Duterte has also asked China for help material help in fighting um, fighting Abu Sayyaf. How's this all going to tu- how's it all going to turn out, Victor? Is there some way to to predict what's what's going to happen in the Philippines and uh, and can you tell us in about 60 seconds? That's fair, isn't it? Well, what what uh, Mr. Duterte has asked for from China and Russia incidentally is weapons. Right. But in the case of the United States, the enhanced defense cooperation agreement is not limited to weapons, but to the actual presence of troops in the country. So it allows U.S. troops to come to the Philippines and stay for limited periods of time. Um, It allows the U.S. to build and operate temporary facilities, which are not to be considered uh, U.S. military bases. And uh, it allows for training uh, exercises between U.S. troops and, and Philippine troops. So this could lead to confrontation between U.S. troops and Abu Sayyaf or directly ISIS fighters in the Philippines. Uh, yes. In fact, between 2002 and 2014, there was a an exercise, there was an agreement mm-hmm. uh, in which uh, the U.S. Uh, provided special forces uh, who assisted Philippine troops in upgrading right. their skills. Victor, I'm going to have to continue this conversation with you another time. I wasn't even looking at the clock, yeah. but we ran out of time. But we'll do it another, we'll, we'll pick it up another day. 
Okay. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, thank you too, Ryan. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.